So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Okay, hello everyone and welcome to this afternoon's session on the winning mindset. I'm really excited to share the next hour with you and hopefully provide some really practical solutions for you on how we can explore this all-important area of mindset and see how we can get it to, to drive our performance in our sports, in our school and in our life. My name is Jeremy Snape and I'm going to take you through the next hour, but just before we start... I'd love you just to type in where you're listening to this webinar from at the moment. So type into that questions box where you're listening to this session from. Great. So I can see uh, James in Birmingham, Ruth. I've got uh, Giggleswick. We've got uh, Josh in Dubai, Becky in Surrey. We've got some cricketers in India, Marlborough College. Wow. Fantastic. Uh, Market Harbour, even quite close to home, Kent, Middlesex, and Oliver says he's in the kitchen. So thanks very much for revealing that, Oliver. We know where you are. That's uh, sharing a bit too much. So let's get into some of the content. This session, we're going to explore a little bit about Sporting Edge, my career, my background, and then I'm going to start to share some insights around how important goal setting is in our performance this all-important area of how we can thrive under pressure and then how we recover from setbacks. That's one of the key areas of the winning mindset through turbulent times. And then we're going to look at building resilience. And I've got lots and lots of your questions in the session today. So I think we've got about 500, 550 people registered for this. So I'm not going to get a chance for everyone's questions, but please do type them in and I'll try and come back to each of you personally and I'll also be on LinkedIn taking some more questions a little bit later on. So let's get started. We've only got an hour. And the sad news is that I was the world's slowest ever bowler when I um, achieved my top flight cricketing career. So 19 years, very much the journeyman pro, not the superstar by any stretch of the imagination. And although there were some brief glimmers of success with man of the match on my England debut in the one day team and hitting the winning runs there on the top right with the 2020 final for Leicestershire. There were also huge periods of, of challenge and, and long periods on tour and some massive moments where I failed under pressure. And I'll be very honest that that picture bottom left is me choking under pressure. And, you know, this massive game, 120,000 people at Eden Gardens in Calcutta, 
this was one of the biggest games and biggest crowds that England had ever played in front of. And I was in about my fourth one day international and they needed a hero to step up and win the game under all the pressure as the run rate was escalating. And I went out to bat with England hero, Freddie Flintoff, and I ran him out. In a moment of madness, I ran him out, the only person that could possibly have won the game. And then my head turned to Blamange as I was standing in the middle of that field with 120,000 uh, Indian fans screaming for Sachin Dendulkar and the likes. And I made a terrible mistake and, and my mind was swirling. And that next ball at Harbhajan Singh bowled may as well have been a hand grenade because it just uh, didn't even register for me. I was in a complete blur and played a massive slug shot. And I was very soon walking back to the pavilion, getting pelted with onion barges from the local school kids. So not a great moment. But actually, I started to realize at that time that we've all got this mental breaking point. We've all got this belief set in our head, if you like, this mindset that says whether we can do things or not. And at that moment in time, I felt completely out of my depth and, and I didn't really feel prepared for it because no one had really spoken about psychology and mindset. Yet to me, it was the biggest difference between success and failure and those brilliant moments that I'd had winning 10 trophies and getting man of the match and hitting the winning runs were all about being in control and backing myself and being confident. But actually that moment, and there were others like it, were about absolute failure. And, and I didn't get beaten by India. I didn't get beaten by that ball from Harbhajan Singh. The worst crime I committed was getting beaten in my own head. So that really set me off with this fascination to go and study a master's degree in sports psychology at Loughborough University so that I could learn more about the mindset and how I could coach people then to understand the, their own mindset and how they could raise their game and understand these coping skills. So very quickly, I got a chance to work with Shane Warne, the legendary Shane Warne out in the Indian Premier League with Rajasthan Royals. We won that first Indian Premier League and it was a fascinating challenge. So I worked with Shane for six years. Then I coached the South African cricket team, supporting them as they went from number four to number one in the world. An amazing experience. And we're going to hear from Graham Smith, the captain during that era, in a moment. And then I got a chance to work on the LMA, which looks after all of the football managers in the UK. So I've met and interviewed the likes of Jose Mourinho, Sir Alex Ferguson, Pep Guardiola, and really got to understand what makes them successful and how they build high performing teams. And then crossing codes again into rugby. I had an amazing privilege of working with Eddie Jones and the England rugby team as they won 18 games in a row and an amazing tour of Australia. So I guess that first life and that coaching life has given me fantastic access to try and understand my greatest passion, which is what makes the most successful people tick? You know, what do they get motivated by? How do they handle their, the pressure in those moments so that they can deliver success time and time again? So Sporting Edge, our high performance consultancy, blends this psychology with these real life stories and video clips from the experts, from the world champions, from the international sports stars and Olympians and neuroscientists and, and experts in all kinds of performance. So over the last 12 years since retiring from my playing career, I've been building this library at Sporting Edge with my team of psychologists and learning experts. And we've got this amazing digital library. And I think it's so important for us at the moment because Many of us can't play sport at the moment. I don't think anyone in the world is playing competitive sport. 
we're all thinking about it. And while we spend so much time on our technical and tactical elements and our physical elements in sport, we very, very rarely spend any time on the mental side. So I thought this might be a good use of an hour to give you some of the strategies and exciting insights that I've learned from the people that I've met to hopefully help you to thrive. So I've got lots of questions that have come through. As I say, over 500 people have, have subscribed into this, so it's brilliant to get so much interest. And the first set of questions, I've got some from parents saying, how do I motivate my teenager to get out of bed and get off the Xbox? Well, if you find out the answer to that, then please share that with all of us. And I've got children of my own in that age category, so I know how this is a, a challenge for us. But the other element is to look at how do we use goals to motivate? And this is a critical area of our performance that I think is often overlooked. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to play the first insight for you from Graham Smith. And this is the captain of the South African cricket team when I was working with them. And this is a story about when he was 11 years old and the dream goal that he set for himself. As I've said before, I was involved in that, that academy and was taught about goal setting. Um, but I guess writing on those goals is something that came from me. Um, and I had on that fridge that uh, you know, I wanted to captain South Africa and amongst various other things, you know, and that was my long-term goal as an 11-year-old. I mean, I never ever dreamt that I'd get it 11 years later. Um, but I set those goals for myself and I, and I worked towards them. And uh, I really believe from the age of 16, I, there wasn't a part of me that didn't believe that I was going to become what I'd, I dreamt I'd become or I'd visualize or I'd set a goal. That was kind of, you know, in my mind when I was playing school sport, this is, this is the path that I was going on, you know, and uh, there was never a doubt about that. So an amazing insight there that we've got an 11-year-old ambitious young man um, drawing a picture of a South African cricket captain. And this was his dream goal. This was his inspirational goal. And he stuck it on the fridge. And for many, many years, then he used that as this guiding principle for him. So my first challenge to you is to think about whatever stage you're at. I'm sure we've got lots of different age groups and lots of different interests, whether you're interested in music or sport or academia or whatever it might be, even some of the parents, to start thinking about this challenge that Graham Smith gives us. Because what I've learned from listening to some of the world champions is that they're able to visualize that moment of success in Technicolor. They visualize with all their senses. They know what it's going to sound like on the podium and feel like. They can taste the salt in their tears. They can feel the sun on their back as they lift that trophy in front of that adoring crowd. And if you can start to create some emotional connection around that dream goal, then this is the kind of thing that really motivates us to get out of bed in the morning and start to lay down the pathway towards those amazing goals. Now, some people tend to keep that internal and be inspired by that on a daily basis. But I think another great strategy is to write that down, to draw it, maybe stick it up somewhere so that you can see it every day. Because motivation comes and goes. Don't believe for a minute that everyone jumps out of bed that's an Olympian and wants to, you know, run 10 miles or do that weight session because they absolutely don't. But they are still committed. They are still focused on delivering today's success that's going to add up towards that end game that they want. So it's all about setting that inspirational vision, encapsulating it or drawing it and writing it down 
and then aligning our daily choices to that to make sure that we are behaving like an Olympic champion day by day. So that's the first challenge that I've got for you today. Another set of parents have asked about, should it be these big goals or habits that are the most important? What, what is important in setting up this motivational climate? And I think another thing that this links to is confidence, because we can't necessarily control whether we um, achieve this gold medal principle, but we can also make sure that we're building confidence on a day-to-day -day basis. So the next insight that we've got is from Olympic coach and now coach from the Team Ineos and Team Sky Tour de France team, Sir Dave Brailsford, talking about goals and targets. I think you've got, you've got a differentiate between two things. I think we, we like to have outcome-driven strategies, so we always want an outcome. But I think you've got to be very careful in terms of um, uh, really clearly understanding what's a dream, what we'd like to happen, and what's a target. Um, let's say Chris Hoy, he wants to win a gold medal, and that's his dream. However, whether that happens or not isn't really in his control. You've got all of the other athletes in the world, You've got a lot of other variables which he can't influence right up until the moment he gets there. But what he can do, he, he can manage everything about himself. So what we, we accept, we all accept we have a dream, that's what we want to happen. But actually we then, ident then identify targets. We can guess pretty much or figure out rather than guess, um, you know, what's it going to take to be on the podium. We can translate that into uh, a weight in the gym power that he develops in, in his sprint training, um, tactical awareness, you know, all of those different things you can create targets around. And so we, went, we then work to those targets. Now that'll only give you a performance and it could, you know, fulfill the dream. We think it would fulfill the dream. But if we just set out thinking, right, the goal is winning, then you're in big trouble. From a psychological point of view, you're in big, big trouble. And I think that's, you know, you see it quite a lot in younger athletes where they think, right, my goal is to win. Well, all you can do then is, is pretty much stress yourself out because winning isn't necessarily within your, within your control. So we find actually recognising, yeah, we want to win, of course we do, but actually we're going to control our world here. We're going to work to these targets. Then everybody settles down. They stop, you know, they don't agitate as much and they can really get on with the job and the processes of what it's going to take to achieve these things. If you tick them off, I'm now in the best shape possible to go and try and achieve my goal, and I'm actually gonna be feeling good about it. I've left no stone unturned, I feel my belief systems are great, my confidence high, I know what to do, I couldn't be more prepared, I'm in the best possible position to try and achieve my dream. And then what happens, happens. So again, another fascinating insight there from this world of high performance. Dave is one of the most successful coaches of all time, really, especially in the cycling arena. So here we've got an incredibly ambitious, with meticulous attention to detail coach, not talking about winning as much as we would think. And we've heard so many coaches at school and regional level just talking about winning. And that actually builds up this stress. So of course we want to win. Of course, every team wants to win, right from under 11s, right through to Olympic teams and, and World Cup football teams. That's a given. So, of course, we need to talk about it once or twice a day, but we don't focus on it relentlessly. What we start to focus on are the things that are within our control. So you can see from this triangle diagram here around that really translates Dave's insight from that dream goal. This is the dream of being the Olympic champion. But 
if we want to break that down, our motivation is going to be incredibly high to be an Olympic champion, but our control of whether we achieve that is minimal. So what we need to do is start to build down the pyramid into something that we can actually do something about. So, for example, now that um, we've got Usain Bolt retired, we can imagine that the Olympic sprinting, you know, 100 meters might be the performance goal needs to be a number, something tangible. In business, when we work with companies, this is a, a profit and loss or a customer engagement score or something. But this is actually about our speed and our, our time in sport. So this might be 9.6 seconds as a performance goal. For a cricketer, it might be a number of runs or, or a number of um, you know dot balls or something that we're about to bowl or a selection into a team. And then we start to break that down into the divisional goals, which are things like mental, physical, tactical and technical elements, which all need to be in place for us to run that speed, to for us to run our best performance. So now we're starting to get a bit more understanding, not just winning and being an Olympic champion. We're starting to think, OK, now I need my mindset, my technique. So what, what key elements of my technique need to be in place? What about my mindset? What does that need to be like? What does my strategy need to be like? And what does my physical component need to be like? Right now, my um, physical element can break down again into these monthly targets and goals, which are things like um, power or flexibility or strength or endurance. And those things can then break down again into these daily and weekly processes, which might be a, you know, a training program in the gym that, that works out every morning's gym session, a hydration plan, a nutrition plan. So now we can see how an athlete on a daily basis surrounded with their elite sort of sports coaches would have their plan around what to eat, how to train, uh, how to sleep, you know, or how long to sleep, and to make sure that they're doing all of those elements just to tick that physical box and then if they're doing the mental, physical, tactical and technical elements over these days and weeks and months, then they're going to build up all the confidence that they need to start delivering their best performance and attack that performance goal. But the only thing we can really control is how we show up each day. So the question is, how can I set myself small goals that are aligned to my overall ambition to be a professional musician or to be a professional rugby player or whatever it might be that mean how do I need to behave by this season by the end of this season I need these targets in place right that means that on a training basis I need these targets in place so all of a sudden I've stopped worrying about whether I'm going to get selected or not and I'm focused on the next 20 minutes of my training training like an Olympian or training like a world champion and not worrying about winning and that's absolutely fundamental because it gives us control and it gives us confidence. And this is so important rather than just talking about winning. So now we start to move forward into this all important performance arena of how do I stop the nerves from hijacking me like they did to me in that balmy night in India? I'll never forget it. Um, so how do we stop? How do we think clearly in the moment and stay calm? So I've got a couple of questions again. I'd love you to type into that questions box. First question that I've got for you all is what kind of situations make you feel nervous? So type into the questions box with your answer of what kind of situations make you feel nervous. So I've got public speaking, exams, 
uncertain situations, competitions, finals, big matches, pressure from coach, pressure from parents, public speaking again, losing, okay, exams, lots and lots of, of great things. The first tee in golf someone's put there, brilliant. Okay, so lots of different scenarios where you're feeling this pressure response, and this is psychological and it's physiological. So you, you get a thought and you get a feeling in your body. So the next question that I've got for you is, what do you think or feel when you're nervous? You can use either of these. So again, type into the box, what does your body feel like? Or what do you think in your mind? I'll get butterflies in my stomach. I'll get sweaty palms. So that's come from Millie there. Don't worry, we've got social distancing, Millie. We won't get to, to see or feel your sweaty palms. Uh, fast breathing there. Um, I get really stressed. I get panic. Uh, Stephen says, I want to go to the toilet. I'm not sure if that's for this webinar or you're actually saying that when you get nervous, Stephen. So this is not a, a proper classroom. So if you need the loo now, please go, mate. Uh, but if it's about the toilet, wanting to go to the toilet when you're nervous, then we'll deal with that in a second. Overthinking everything, feeling panicked, feeling warm. My legs start to shake, feeling sick. My face goes red. OK, lots of butterflies, overthinking the negative. Brilliant. OK, so you've all started to get a sense for what that feels like. And I just want to share with you where that's coming from, because the most important thing to understand is that our brain wasn't built for high performance. All of those elements, whether it's a big final or it's a, an exam for your GCSEs or your A-levels or whether it's a music concert, those are all high performance opportunities. And our brain wasn't built for that. Our brain was built 50,000 years ago in the savannah to be cavemen with long, long periods of calm and have long periods of, of nothing really going on. But then very, very occasionally, we would see the predator in the environment, which was probably a saber-toothed tiger, and that would threaten our lives. So our life was in threat. So we needed something to grab hold of our attention, to take our conscious brain offline and go to that primitive animal instinct, that fight and flight response, which would keep us safe in the short term. And it's really important to think about that. We were in short-term survival mode. So that fight and flight adrenaline and cortisol and freeze also is another condition which I've certainly had under pressure. Those are natural responses. And, and we get these physiological responses that come from our interpretation of the environment. So even though the saber-toothed tiger we know isn't there anymore, we still get the exact same physiological response because now our brain is trying to keep us safe. And it's not keeping us safe from being eaten alive. It's keeping our self-esteem safe, keeping our reputation safe. We're also worried about what people think of us and our mates and what our social group you know, think about us and say about us on our social media platforms. So this is where the judgment comes in. So our brain says, instead of keep going and, and moving forward, it gives us all these signals to say, You've got to watch out here. Your, your reputation's on the line. And the blood leaves our hands because we're about, well, our brain thinks we're taking on the saber-toothed tiger, so we're going to go into combat. Our, the blood leaves our hands and goes into our major muscles getting, so we don't lose uh, blood in, in a fight. So that's why we get sweaty palms, Millie. We start breathing really quickly because the blood has to shunt 
uh, all around our body into our major muscles for ready to run. So that's why some people are feeling hot and flushed. And that's why somebody said that their legs feel really stiff and their shoulders. And that's why the blood's moving there so that you can run as fast as you can. And, and all of those elements are very, very natural because your brain's trying to keep you safe. So there's two ways to work with this. One is to say that this is not some place I want to be. Uh, and we rush, we take high risk shots and we want to get out of there as soon as we can. Now, for me on that night in India, the place of safety was guess where? The pavilion. And actually, it wasn't safe because I'd just run Freddie Flintoff out. But you get my point that our brain tries to take us to safety. So your brain will try and make you speak faster if you're doing a public speech. Your first few lines will be gobbledygook and so fast. So what the champions have learned to do is not be led astray and hijacked by these psychological and physical things. They actually understand those as part of the excitement, as part of the warm-up, as part of the countdown. So before this webinar, when I realized there was over 500 people on it, my stomach was churning, my palms were sweating, and, and you know I got nervous because I want to do well for you. So that's a very natural thing. But I see that as me getting ready to perform and getting ready to be at my best, which I hopefully can be for the remainder of this time. So it's really important to see these physiological and psychological things as very, very natural. Now, the weak performers step back and listen to it and get hijacked and deliver poorly under pressure as a result. And I've done that a thousand times. And it's the thing I regret most, if I'm being honest, about all of my career, whether it's in sport or, or in business, when I've rushed something and not done well. But actually, when I've slowed down, when I've focused on my breathing, when I've slowed, you know, straightened my posture and I walk more slowly to where I'm about to do the speech and I take a big breath in like a set of bagpipes that I can be powerful from and then I slowly deliver my first line then that's when I'm in control. And that's when it feels great that we can balance the nerves and the anxiety that we've got because we want to do well, but we're still moving forward and we're still performing. So we'd love to have this balance between the challenge that we see in front of us and the coping skills that we've got. And that's this perfect zone that you've probably heard about. But so often in the high pressure environment, and certainly my Indian situation was like this, where the challenge starts to feel bigger. This is, you know, I played at Lords in front of 25,000 people. I played for England. I've done okay. But now all of a sudden I've got 120,000 people in this stadium. And this is a massive game against some of the world's biggest players. This is the biggest night of my life. This is the biggest game ever. This is, you know, the biggest ball in history. And I completely emotionalized this situation to the point where I wasn't thinking straight. And what often happens then is we start to emotionalize this big, big, catastrophic, all-defining moment is we lose access to our coping skills of where we've done this in the past. So that voice in my head was saying I wasn't good enough to be there. So it's really important that we're able to rebalance this by looking back into our track record and going back to our strengths. So what, what are we good at? What can we do? And it's often under pressure the champions that are able to do the brilliant basics. They don't do anything flash. They just pass the ball to the nearest person. They hit the ball down for a single and think clearly. You know, they, they play the next shot on the, on the golf course and, and then think. You know, they, they're able to manage their, themselves and their time and rebalance this equation 
until the pressure starts to move away. So I really hope that you find that useful in starting to think um, about how you can, when you're approaching these pressure situations, you can welcome those nerves, you can welcome that anxiety, all as part of the equation of being a top performer. And it, it's an absolute privilege to be going out and doing something fun for your school, for your, you know, in a race or something, you're in a final, what a brilliant position, You'd rather be in the final than not. So really start to welcome that as part of the preparation and the countdown rather than seeing it as something that only you experience because everyone gets nervous. So let's look now at this moment of pressure. We're about to walk out and I know we've got some top aspiring swimmers in the audience today. Uh, and this is from Fran Halsall, who was the Commonwealth Gold Champion in Swimming, mainly in the freestyle and butterfly. But this is one of her insights. And again, just a very honest insight from her about her mindset as she walked out onto the blocks ahead of one of these races occasionally occasionally i do think about it i think uh i what happens if i don't do as well as i want to do but then it's kind of winning the battle between thinking that and thinking oh i can do this i want to do this and i think there's always little negative things that go through my mind as i'm in the courtroom waiting to go out to the blocks like uh Oh, my big toe hurts a little bit. I don't want it to hurt. That's not going to make it much better. But then once I get on the blocks, the last thing I say to myself is, come on, Fran, you can do it. And it's having the positiveness outweighing the negativeness at the end that's going to make you swim fast. So if you win the battle, then you're fine. It's just making sure you win the battle. So interesting to hear from Fran there, one of the world's top swimmers, talking about about to go into the Olympics or about to go into a Commonwealth race. And actually was thinking about a big toe. And again, this hijack that can take place that our brain's trying to say, you know, your legs are sore today. You're not going to do very well. You know, those other people's muscles look a bit bigger or they've probably advised more for this exam. And again, all of that dialogue in your head is just there because your brain is saying this is a place where you could get judged. And you're right. We want to get judged because we want to get on the podium or we want to give ourselves a great chance of winning this race. So we need to be able to understand that voice in our head and to control it. So the way I often think about this, hopefully you can see this visual, is the way our brain jumps between different thoughts very quickly. So this ability to control our thinking and reframe it is really important. Hi, I hope you're enjoying today's episode. I just wanted to introduce you to Sporting Edge's Winning Mindset Programme. It builds on many of today's topics and explores the six drivers which have emerged from our research into the psychology of high performance. We've distilled down the six strategies that separate the world's most successful people and have curated those into a digital coaching programme so that you can develop them for your own career. As a professional cricketer, I always felt like my mindset was the biggest difference between my best and worst day, but we never spent any time developing it. That's why we've created this flexible 30-day program for entrepreneurs, execs, and sports coaches. We've had over a 1,000 delegates through the program in recent years, with an average of 10 to 15% uplift in their confidence, resilience, and well-being. So visit sportingedge.com to join our next cohort. Performing like a pro starts by thinking like one. The Winning Mindset is a pioneering digital coaching program from Sporting Edge. You'll have access to world-class thinkers and performers who'll inspire you with daily five-minute micro-lessons 
to boost your confidence, resilience and well-being. You'll learn from Olympians, neuroscientists, productivity and well-being experts with bite-sized strategies to help you raise your game. The Winning Mindset. Find out more at www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com. So imagine that you've just been, uh, you're just coming out of the uh, changing room and, and in Fran's example, she says, you know, oh, you know, I've started to think about, oh, there's a massive crowd in today. My legs are really sore. I've got a bit of a twinge. I don't feel great. What if I lose this, you know, race and I don't get qualify, you know, and then these thoughts start to link together into even more negative things that, oh, what if I don't get, what if I got dropped off the squad what happens if I don't make the team and I don't get through? Everyone's going to be really disappointed. What are my parents going to think? You know, what what happens if I get dropped from the club and they never want me to be part of it again? And before we know it, within about 30, 60 seconds, we've created this absolutely catastrophic scenario of stuff that is completely irrational. And that is part of the trap. And having interviewed and worked with and been a decent performer myself back in the day, everyone does this. Everyone at the top level does it. So if you're 12, 15, 17, 20, and you're worried about this, then welcome aboard. Welcome to the club, because this is when you put yourself on the line, you're going to feel nervous and you're going to feel edgy like this. But the challenge for us is to reframe it. So when we get to that first negative point about, you know, oh, this is a massive, massive race for me, then we've got to reframe it and say, well, I've been in big races before. And I've got to make sure that I'm relaxed on the start line or I've got to make sure that, you know, I, I answer the first question in this exam well or I read and prepare, understand where all the points are coming from and understand how much time I've got to write this essay. And then I start to think, well, I've done well before in my mock exams or I've, I've actually done well in the training or my net sessions as a cricketer or my kicking practice in rugby has been really solid. So I've just got to make sure that I use that example now. And actually, I could be really successful in this situation. And I could go on to win this for my team and actually have a really good tournament. So this is all about this reframing of the situation from a negative, catastrophic spiral into grabbing hold of the moment and, and saying to yourself, what's important now? So everyone talks about winning but actually, we've got to grab that moment, control our thinking and saying, what's important now? So what I want you to do, and, and this is something that we're not very good at doing, is we've all had in our own experiences a time when we've handled pressure brilliantly. And you will all have had that. And in those moments of high pressure and high stakes, you need to stay connected to those rather than just worry about this being the biggest day ever and you, you can't win this race. So I want you just to spend a few moments thinking about an amazing game, a concert or an exam when you perform brilliantly under pressure. And I want you to think about what were you doing at that time? What made you feel so in control? What made you feel so confident? Maybe you could just type into that questions box again. What was it that gave you that belief and that confidence and that control? Let's see a few of those examples from your own experiences, not the Olympians now. This is you actually doing it in your past. So I've got somebody saying uh, revision and preparation, somebody saying visualization. Um, I said I could do it. I got hold of my self-talk. I was patient. I was praying. I just did the brilliant basics. 
I was saying in my head, let's go and do it again. This is when I scored my first 100 for the county. I was being calm, taking it ball by ball. Uh, there was a, a rush of adrenaline, but I stayed calm. I slowed my breathing down. I walked slower. So these are absolutely brilliant examples of where you've all um, really handled pressure. Um, some people talking about a routine. So this is where we build out with the top athletes, not just keeping your brain empty, but using this talking techniques or breathing techniques or physical mannerisms and steps between, uh, you know, standing away at square leg as a cricketer and then coming back into your crease. Or it may be, you can all think of Johnny Wilkinson's kicking technique before a, a, a penalty and how he meticulously follows that same drill. So this is how in those moments of extreme pressure, we focus on the brilliant basics. We slow down like an astronaut bouncing on the surface of the moon. We walk much slower because remember, our brain's trying to speed us away to safety to get out of the way so that we can go back to the dressing room or away from that exam. But if we rush it, we won't be able to deliver our strength and our skill. So it's absolutely critical for you to stay connected to this bank account of success. You all have a bank account of success and evidence that is in your past that you've achieved. And it's really important that you're able to stay connected to that when you really need it. So again, write these things down, have a little notebook to say, you know, this is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to stay focused. You know, we've seen cricketers with something, you know, and picture or a symbol on the bat handle or in the batting gloves or a golfer with a red dot on their glove to, to remind them to stay calm at that moment when there's a really important putt. So some great examples. Now, even though we might have set brilliant goals, we might have great confidence, we might have prepared brilliantly, we can still have setbacks. And again, this is another critical thing for you to think about when you have uh, mistakes coming your way. So let's hear now from Kate Richardson-Walsh, the Olympic gold medalist and the captain of the GB women's hockey team, as she talks about coping with past mistakes. Setbacks are obviously, they occur regularly, they occur often. Sometimes they're minute and seemingly unnoticeable to the outside world. Uh, and sometimes they're huge. Um, and I think, I think I've probably dealt with them all in a, in a different way, but I... I do think that I would just focus on that as a as a moment in time and focus on that rather than it affecting my whole uh, self-esteem and self-confidence. It would it would just be about that small moment of time. And I would every night after a game, when I'm going to sleep, I will be running through the mistakes that I've made in that game. Every single one, clear as day in my mind, I'll be replaying it. And I won't be replaying it to kick myself and say, you're rubbish. I'll be replaying it to almost reset it. And what would I do next time? And then almost see me doing it well. So I would play the error and then play it doing, doing it well in my head. And then that would be done with. Once I'd done that, that was me kind of getting over those kind of small ones. The bigger, the bigger setbacks, are, I think, are are more difficult to get over, but I think it is breaking those things down, again, into bite-sized manageable things. Um, resilience is obviously talked about a lot in sport and in business, and, and I believe it's not something that you are born with necessarily. I think it can be developed, and I think it can be strengthened, and I think everybody has the ability to be resilient. I think it's just giving everybody the tools to be resilient.
So again, a, a fascinating insight from a top Olympic champion. And, and I think we've got to have a mindset where setbacks are going to happen. We're going to go in against opposition and schools teams where they're better than us, where they ask really challenging questions of us and, and we have a, make a mistake or we lose some games. So I know there's been quite a few parents thinking about, you know, how do we recover from mistakes with our children? Because it, it can take an emotional toll. And, and absolutely that's the case because we all feel so passionately about our performance. So I think what we're learning here is that, first of all, we should expect a few mistakes. That's nothing new. But it's how quickly we can recover from those, both in the moment and after the, the mistake has happened in, in the days following up. So maybe I heard I uh, spoke to a, a golfer a couple of days ago who was talking about this reframing and being able to get over a bad shot. Maybe the ball ended up in a bunker and we were talking about, OK, well, don't sort of carry on with that emotion for the next hour of your round. You know, berate yourself up until you get to that next tree. And then by the time you get to that tree, take a deep breath and then you're on with the rest of the round. So I think you've almost got to say to yourself, right, I'm going to give myself five seconds or if you're a cricketer, walk past the umpire and then that's done. And then we start to reframe it and get on to the next ball. But if we look at how some of the top champions start to look at reframing these uh, setbacks in the longer term, then they've got a very, very um, specialized way of doing it. And this is some research from some of the most resilient people in the world. So there's a real difference between on the left hand side here saying that, you know, I've, I've missed a penalty. Um, I'm terrible at football and this is fixed for all time. So I am just rubbish at football. That's that global belief. It's all of me. I'm useless. It's going to last forever and it's fixed. That's the worst case scenario because there's no way back from that. But what we're hearing from Kate and some of the, the top research areas is that the most resilient people have this ability to say, yeah, that, um, that penalty kick at 10 past four on that Saturday afternoon, it didn't go in. You know, we lost the game and that was down to me. Um, and I can tell you that it was because at 10 past four, I didn't prepare myself, my thinking skills to have a specific target for my penalty. So I was just running up, worried about if I missed it. And I kicked it, you know, half-heartedly. And that's why I had no power. And that's why the goalkeeper saved it. But that is absolutely something that I can improve in my training sessions. And now that I've had that painful setback in an under-14s game, I'll never let that happen again. So you can see this very, very different mindset. One group says that this has happened and I, that just tells me that I'm rubbish at you know, languages or I'm in those exams or I'm rubbish at football now. And then we've got this other group who are able to dissect the challenge and dissect the problem and say, yeah, but it happened because at a specific time with a specific skill that I've got, I made that mistake and I can do something about that and I will do something about it. And that's where these setbacks go far from being debilitating. They actually become a focus for next week's training and this continual quest for improvement carries on. So this ability to stay motivated for long periods of time is absolutely critical. And again, I know we've got a lot of parents saying, how can we keep children motivated and resilient after setbacks or long periods of, of challenge? And I think we've got, to, again, to think, you know, what is our scenario? Do, do we really believe that it's going to be like this picture here where 
we set a goal and it's all going to be plain sailing or plain cycling in this particular example. Or like we're all experiencing at the moment, there's so much uncertainty, there's so much change, there's, you know, massive competition in other schools, there's injuries, there's setbacks, there's coaches that don't believe in us, there's, you know, a mistake that we're making technically that we've got to go away and fix. All of these elements are, that's the challenge. Actually, we're not competing against another school, we're not competing against Brazilian football, the first challenge is I'm competing with myself in my own head. Can I do this course? Can I stick with this whole journey? Can I overcome the challenges that are in the terrain ahead of me, whether that's sleet, snow, swamps, crevasses, whatever that might be? I'm going to crawl through the mud. I'm going to climb those cliffs. I'm going to swim through those lakes. And I'm going to get to my dream that Graham Smith asked us to think about and that's the motivational fuel that keeps me going for a long time. But, you know, mental toughness is the ability to cope with all of that change. And this insight from one of Team GB's top Paralympians, Adia Depitan, gives us a great insight into the lived experience of being one of these performers who constantly has to adapt to stay at the top of their game. I feel I'm mentally tough. And, and I've learned to be mentally tough. I don't think you, you're, you're, you're born mentally tough. It comes from um, years of experience. Um, and mental toughness is, is for you to have a goal, um, to be able to set yourself a goal, to know what you want to do um, and to find a way. It's to be so bloody minded, but you're, you're able to find a way. I mean, you, you almost have to be quite selfish and, 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 and focused, but also open to learning from your mistakes. And sometimes it's really hard and it's contradictory for athletes because we have massive egos. When you, to, to get to the top, you, 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 you have to sometimes feel you're a little bit better than other people. And it's, it's hard for me to say because I don't, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I have that in in inner built confidence um but then there are times where you have to be prepared to to have that stripped away and be able to start again you know to have that foresight to say okay what i've been doing for the last four or five years is absolute rubbish i need to start again and i need to rebuild and become better than i was before so maybe it's just being prepared to do what it takes to be better than you used to be so again, a really interesting insight from Adia Depitan. And, and this is this balance between the confidence to know that you're good enough at your sport or good enough to do what you want to do, but also having that humility to say, well, I might not be good enough. I might not be as good as I could be. So what do I need to change and what do I need to improve? And it's almost like we're in this constant improvement mode, a little bit like the regular updates we get on our iPhone or our Xbox games or whatever it might be, we're constantly looking to improve and have the latest upgrade. And, and because our pride is so important to us, we've got to see ourselves a bit like those pieces of technology or those apps that keep improving and installing a better update. And that's what Addy's talking about. So we've got to think about how we can you know, move forward with that. And, and Carol Dweck, one of the researchers in, in America, did some brilliant work around a group of students that were all of a very similar quality. You might have heard about this in your schools, where she got them all to take a test and they all scored around 80% in the test because they were all picked from a similar standard group. 
and she split them in half. To one group, she said, congratulations, you're brilliant, you're gifted, you're talented, you're intelligent, you're the clever ones, you've got a natural gift, well done, look after that and protect it wherever you can. And then to the other group, who equally scored 80%, she said to them, you know, well done, you were really concentrated hard, you must have prepared, you must have all those experiences in the past and successes and failures you must have learned from and brought those together into this test and stayed focused, stayed concentrated, and you really delivered a great performance to get 80%. Well done. You know, you're really hardworking and adaptable. That's brilliant. So over a few months, this conversation kept going and the two groups got very, very different feedback from their teachers. One group thought all their success had come from a natural ability and the other group thought their success had come from tenacity and hard work and persistence and perseverance and adapting. And then she moved in and asked them a, a really interesting question. And she said, okay, now you've all got 80% in the first test. I've got a much harder test. Who'd like to take it? So again, in that questions box, write down, do you think it was the group that thought they were talented? Or do you think it was the group that thought they were hardworking and adaptable? So group one is the talented group and the clever group. And group two is the group that were hardworking and tenacious and, and adaptable. Which group do you think it was that uh, wanted to take the harder test? So I can see lots of you probably know this uh, work, and if not, you've answered brilliantly. So it's the second group. They all wanted to take this test, or the majority did, because the first group was so worried about failure. They were so worried about, if I take this test and fail when everyone already thinks I'm clever, I might lose that tag. If everyone thinks I'm talented and I mess up in this next hour's paper, I might go back a bit in everyone else, else's expectations. So let me play it safe and not take the test. But of course, the people who thought that their mindset was developing every day and by every test and by every mistake and success that they made, then they were quite happy to go at it quite aggressively and say, well, this test in itself doesn't define me. I'm constantly growing and I'm more than happy to have a crack at it and go. So, so that second group with this growth mindset, when they came up against challenges, they were much more likely to embrace them. So this is that ability when you get a chance to play in your school first team that might be you know next school year now with this big gap that we're all experiencing. But take the challenge, take it on. Don't see it as a defining moment, that first pass or that first touch of the ball. It's actually a great stepping stone and it's another experience that you can build from. If you have a setback, like we've heard, think about it in the moment. Well, it was just that shot in the way, you know, I was thinking it was just that ball that I bowled. It was the wrong one to that batsman at that time. I can get better than that. And I will do. It's my hard work that's really important and sticking with it and having the discipline to learn and, and keep practicing a thousand times till I can get better. That's the most important thing that drives success and keep learning from everyone as much as you possibly can. And when we see other people's success, people with a growth mindset tend to say, who's the best in my club? Who's the best in my network? Who's the best in my school? Let me learn from them. Whereas people who think it's all about talent and, you know, uh, this abil brilliant ability that's fixed, they think that, oh, those people are lucky or they must have cheated or something. How can they have it? They can't teach me anything. So we need to keep this humility and keep this ability to learn from other people at the forefront of our mind. 
because actually we should see our next five to 10 years, in, whether we're parents in business or we're you know, children in school or sport or music, to start thinking about how do I keep improving through these various change episodes and get through them as fast as I can? Because, you know, I was very lucky as a youngster getting picked for England under 15, getting signed as a pro at 16, um, getting into the first team at 18, um, getting picked for England, you know, and I never thought I'd made it because there was always more steps above. And when you step up to each level, when you play in your first team at school, that's when you start learning. When you go to university and play in that team, you'll start learning. And if you do turn professional at something, you, you start at the bottom again. So our ability to keep improving and keep that desire and hunger is absolutely pivotal to whether we're able to sustain that success over time. And lots of parents are saying to me, how do I motivate my kids and get them on this you know, high performance path? Well, I think it's pretty simple. We try and take away the demotivation. We try and take away the pressure. We try and take away the fear of failure from everyone. And, and we keep driving this speed of getting over these mistakes so that we learn and we, we're able to commit and throw ourselves into it. Because the example at the bottom of the screen is where somebody's slow and they don't work hard and they don't recover from setbacks and they don't really take risks and they don't stretch themselves. And the person at the top is going faster, taking on risks, learning all the time and throwing themselves in at the deep end into a team that's better than them. You know, if you're the worst player in a team, that's a fantastic place to be. You're going to learn a huge amount. So ultimately, as children get over, older, up to 15, maybe we've got to be more directive with them. But as children get beyond 15 and up to 18 and into professional sport, they become the CEO of their own performance, like us as adults. And everything we choose to do, whether we do those weights, whether we do those you know, training drills, whether we build our core stability, whether we eat the right things, whether we go to bed on time, those are our choices. And our share price is dictated on a daily basis by those choices. And I can 100% guarantee that the elite performers that I've had the privilege of meeting are both talented, that's their passport into the club, without a doubt, can't do it without natural talent or intelligence, but it's the fusion of their talent and their relentless hard work and their discipline that is absolutely the key that takes them to the very top. So I hope you found those insights useful. I've got a couple more questions that I'm gonna take on. So please do put any questions into the box. I'll answer those. If I don't get them to it in, in this particular recording, I'll get to you privately and, and make sure that I get back to everyone. So please do put your questions in. But I will just say that if you want to stay in touch, I'll keep this conversation going on LinkedIn. So Jeremy Snape on LinkedIn, I'll keep the conversation there. If you want to email and stay in touch, it's hello at sportingedge.com. And we've got three things that you might be interested in. First of all, there's my podcast, which has got about six or seven episodes. I'm actually going to turn this into a podcast episode as well. So that's called Inside the Mind of Champions. That's on our Sporting Edge website, but it's also in Apple and Spotify. We've also got a, a children's or a school's toolkit that we can help you with if you're in school, one of the teachers. And we've got a collection of our video insights that's helping a number of schools at the moment, uh, especially while they're working remotely. And then for any people, any parents that have got businesses that are working remotely, we've just launched a collection of digital insights, about 74 of those about remote working and staying productive and, and staying with your health and well-being is paramount there. So 
please do uh, drop me a note if you're interested in any of those things. In terms of the questions that came through earlier in the day in terms of enrolment, we've got um, questions coming in about how do we retain our confidence after a previous negative experience? And I think, again, this is about going back to where we've been successful in the past, writing down what did you do in that game last season where you scored a century or you played a brilliant role at midfield? What were you doing? What were you thinking? How did you prepare? Let's go back to when I was at my best and encapsulate that in a set of bullet points or a note to say, right, that's my blueprint for success. So that all I need to do is focus on delivering that. I can't tell you that I'm going to be the player of the match or the player of the school's tournament. But if I deliver my best game, that's a success in itself. So that's really, really important. The second things, how do we get youngsters to train mental skills now that we're all off sport and all away from school? And, and to be honest, that's why I put this webinar together so that we could share an hour's worth of mental skills and psychological training because as I mentioned before, 20 years as a professional cricketer, I can't imagine that more than 5% of my time was spent on mental training, yet it was the biggest difference between my best and worst days. So how can that be the case? And I think, although that was probably 20 years ago since I started, it's now about, we know much more about psychology. Some of these strategies are much more common. So we need to build in time. But we also, as coaches, need to build pressure situations into our drills to make sure there is a consequence. There is a time pressure. You know, if it's catching skills, we're doing it with a, a smaller ball from a shorter distance. Let's build the pressure. Let's build it to be competitive where we've got people working against each other to be the top of the class at the end of the, the fielding session. All of those things help us to groove our skills under pressure. We can't just switch our brilliance on under the heat of the, the massive um, final. We need to have trained at that level. So rather than stepping up, we need to train as if it's the final to start with. So that's a really important thing about pressure. Question three comes from a parent asking whether schools should be pushing development or competition and winning. And I think this absolutely has to be both. I remember as a youngster failing my 11 plus to a private school with lots of sport and going to a comprehensive school where there wasn't a huge amount. And I think I missed out on that competitive element. So I think we need to be competitive. We need to have finals. We need to have winners and losers. That's absolutely critical. But it's equally important that we balance the ethical side and the teamworking side and the selfless side of sport so that we maintain the standards of our sports and we learn to develop our character as human beings as much as sports performers. So we've all seen elements like the smash and grab short term desperation to win at all costs from the likes of Lance Armstrong or the sandpaper gate in the Australian cricket team and that absolutely shouldn't be part of what we're pushing and it definitely won't be tolerated so the balance between the two is absolutely critical and then we've got another insight here on how do I manage social media so I've pulled one of our insights from Frank Lampard the Chelsea football manager giving us a bit of a tip here and some advice for the youngsters on the line the last thing I want to do is sound like a dinosaur saying that you shouldn't touch an iPad or a, or a social media site. So I think it's there. We have to adapt to that. But I think as youngsters, I would say control it. Realise that social media uh, is 80% not real. 
And I don't mean it's lies. I just mean it's uh, something that's sort of created that we can sort of buy into. So I think there's no there's no problem with casting your eye now. I mean, I do now. And uh, but you have to try and put it in a box where you kind of go, well, my, what's real is what's here and what's in front of me. So if I'm talking to a young boy or girl who wants to be a professional player, I'm saying, um, what can I affect? Okay, I can train this many hours. What does my coach want me to improve on? Yes, I can do that. Rest, recovery, schoolwork. Those are my fundamentals that are really going to um, uh, going to create my future. Um, and social media is this thing that maybe is used for enjoyment. I can touch on it, but it is not the real world. These things, I can touch them. They're the real world. Those aren't. So I think that's, in terms of social media, I would do that. In terms of um, the actual real world, um, work as hard as you can. Work absolutely as hard as you can. Listen to anybody who has knowledge, um, your elders, your your peers, everybody around you, whether you agree with it or not, take it all in, take it all in, take it all in. And then as you go along, you'll 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 naturally dissect what you think is right and wrong. And then you, you create your own image, but take never stop taking it in and think you know it all or know something before somebody else has told you. Even if you li listen and disagree, listen and disagree, it makes you stronger. Um, but enjoy. That sounds like I'm being really harsh. This is the hard work and hard work and hard work. You have to enjoy what you're doing at the same time. So the message is pretty clear. Stay in the real world, according to Frank. Work so hard. Take in loads of feedback. And that's where you'll enjoy it. And I think that's absolutely critical. The last couple of questions we got before we close were how to stay motivated in isolation. I did a, a webinar couple of weeks ago called The Great Pause, which has got some strategies there. And it was all really around, you know, managing your energy. I think that's going to be critical. Make sure you're getting some exercise and make sure you're getting some good sleep and downtime as well. This there's never been a time when all of us around the world have been on pause. So I think we've got a chance to reflect and, and to learn some new skills. Make sure you stay connected to your mates on FaceTime and house party or WhatsApp or whatever it is you know, stay connected to people and also try and get out of your own head a little bit and help other people. I think we've seen a lot of great community spirit and I think that can certainly help us in the short term. But for those people that are going through illness within their family, I mean, that's that's enough to cope with on their own and their winning mindset will just be taking it hour by hour. But for the rest of us, you know, there are some elements there that we can really focus on to, to get us through this challenging and uncertain time. And the best piece of advice I was asked to give, I don't know if I've been given any amazing advice that, that really sticks, but I think for me, we talk about the winning mindset. We talk about winning. We talk about being number one. But to me, it's all about being as good as you can be. Every morning I have this vision of two people getting out of bed and, and one of me is sluggish and a bit more miserable and not wanting to commit quite as much, not wanting to do any exercise and going in sort of slow motion. And the other one is starting to, you know, jump out of bed, be a little bit more energetic, set some goals and start to move forward much more quickly. So I think when we attack our day and we prepare well, we have the courage to take risks that I've spoken about before and then we really commit to delivering our best, take those risks, try and get into that tough position and go for it with no regrets. Because I can safely say the only days I regret in my cricket career over 20 years are the days when I wasn't brave enough to put my hand up. I had no problem being beaten, no problem being good enough. 
But when I beat myself before I even started, that's when I regret that. So to all of you out there, set some goals and just go for it. Be ambitious and, and really get stuck in because when you work hard and set your sights high, that's when you really enjoy your sport and your life. So I hope you've enjoyed that. I hope you found it really useful. Please do stay in touch on LinkedIn or send an email through to hello at sportingedge.com. The podcast Inside the Mind of Champions goes into great depth. Please subscribe to that and, and stay connected that way. And as I mentioned, any of the other digital elements, you've just heard the audio today, but if you want some of the video content, then please do give us a shout. And all that I've got to say is that sport brings us together. Unfortunately, none of us can play sport at the moment, but I really hope you've enjoyed thinking about sport and thinking about how you're going to use these mental skills to go out and smash it when you get your chance. So I wish you every success. Thank you so much for tuning in today and good luck.